0: Hello and welcome to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. My name is Jude Mark McGowan. I'm a dyslexic, actor, writer, and now I'm a podcaster. This podcast is to support the incredible work of the Dyslexia Foundation, whose mission is to unlock the full potential of children and adults with dyslexia so that they can succeed and contribute fully to society. They do incredible work. They test any adult off the street and teach them to read for free. Everything is free at the point of use. My guest today is the author, Sally Gardner. Birmingham born near the Cadbury's chocolate factory in Bourneville, England. She grew up in Grey's Inn in central London, an area I know well from my time at drama school. To say she struggled at school is an understatement. She was repeatedly kept back in school and ended up in a school for maladjusted children. And against all the odds, she learned to read at the age of 14. Wuthering Heights was the first book she read And after that, she says, no one could stop her. After graduating with a first from Central St Martins, she worked for 15 years as a set and costume designer in the theatre in many of the grandest and most storied theatres in the country. As a writer, she has to date sold over 2 million books to the UK and her work has been translated into 22 different languages. I personally love her dark and original maggot Moon, whose hero is a bullied but resilient dyslexic in an alternative dystopian England in the 1950s. She says of dyslexia, I strongly believe that dyslexia is like a Rubik's cube. It takes time to work out how to deal with it. Once you do, it can be the most wonderful gift. I wanted to speak to Sally because she's an incredibly vocal member of uh, the dyslexic community. And she stresses the importance of collaboration in her work. She has a 13 year long relationship with her manuscript editor. And between them, they had this symbiotic relationship, which is really key to her producing her stories, which she talks about in the podcast, and and it's wonderful. It was an absolute joy speaking to Sally. She's really funny. She's incredibly engaging, very inspiring. And uh, she talks very eloquently about dyslexia and about the need to assess people and to recognise that uh, more people are dyslexic and more people suffer with dyslexia than we, at the moment, acknowledge or that we, we care to do anything about. And um, she talks about it in depth in the podcast. And um, myself, and my producer, uh, adored this episode and we're really excited for you to listen. Speaking to Sally, I found incredibly emotional. There were times where our experience of school tallied. And instances that had happened to her, it certainly happened to me. I did get emotional a couple of times during the recording of the, the podcast, but I, I feel like we really connected. So it was a, a podcast of connection for me. I hope you enjoy the episode as much as I enjoyed making it. Well, Sally, welcome. It's, it's an absolute pleasure to have you, to have you on the, um, the pod.
1: Um, how are you, first of all, how are you in this time? How's it been? well i i've been really lucky because i had a book to write i'm just actually doing the acknowledgments on it now and i really didn't know what it was about (laughs) (laughs) and thinking what is this book what relevance does this book have it was set up a mountain and the people in this village became isolated and it's a book about that really right and a lot of other things and suddenly this book began to take on huge meaning yeah in a way that he had never done before and i spent most of lockdown every morning with a cup of coffee climbing the stairs to my workroom and getting up a mountain in my head so for me it's been all right i mean the only downside is i put on weight <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're not the only one you are not the only one in this time that's guaranteed
1: but that's the only downside i can think of
0: <laughs> yeah Absolutely. Well, I mean, isolation for a writer, I should imagine is is uh, encouraged it's what you need, you know, that the breaking up of uh, your imagination, surely is, is one of the biggest you know, obstacles for for writing.
1: Actually, this really came a really interesting question, because one of the things that came clear to me is usually at this time, I am doing schools like they're coming out of my ears, or I am doing this or I am doing that. And writing is a sort of almost you have to slip it in the slipstream. Yeah. And really to have time to actually brood and think about what you're doing to sort of mull it over to really work the language which is what a writer needs to do was just wonderful and it made me think do i need to do all the other things really if i want to concentrate on what i love doing which is writing
0: what i would love i would love because i i love speaking to other creative people about their processes and i know you, you can often think that your your own process is boring and going through the minutiae might not be interesting to other people, but I personally find it fascinating. So what are the circumstances that you have to set up for yourself that are most conducive to you, to ideas coming or you feeling that you're you know, getting into that creative flow?
1: Well, I talk a lot to myself. <laughs> I mean, I think all writers are fairly bonkers, quite honestly. You are a private actor. You You have to act. And you have to hear the words yeah I I feel you have to hear them in your head and you have to feel them and then they have to go on the paper but I talk a lot about it I speak it out I walk it out I think a lot about it and then I start to write and often all that I've spoken about all that I thought about never turns up on the paper it's just as if your brain has gone okay well you did that as a warm-up that was good you know your joe wicks exercise for the day but actually girl this is the story bing bong and i love that with characters i love it when a character just goes no yeah (laughs) you may want me to go there but i'm not going and i think about writing quite a lot because I, every time I set off on a book, I always think to myself, "Oh, this is going to be easy. I'll get it done very quickly." I mean, this one will be. I'll just roll it off. <laughs> and it—it's it, like Everest. You know, the the nursery steps of Everest is littered with manuscripts of good intentions. Yeah. And then you sort of get halfway up the mountain, and there's very, very few manuscripts up there. But there are a few. And then you get to the top, and you realise that you are almost alone. <laughs> <laughs> And you've got a little bit more to go. Yeah. And it's always that little bit more that really makes you think, oh, I'm just going to give up now. That's been really interesting in lockdown because I've had time to do, oh, I'm not done, I've got to go up a bit higher. I find that quite interesting. Is
0: that is that usually something that somebody else does for you? You know, do, do you have other people writing to go, no, I, I think you haven't quite reached the summit of Everest here? You've still got that little bit, bit to go.
1: Well, I've worked for a long time. I have a private editor, my own editor, because I am severely dyslexic. So it's no point saying you're severely dyslexic, and you can write about a book without help. Yeah, those two don't make the right equations. It's a bit like saying, I, you know, I have a wheelchair, but I can do ballet on my spare time. It, you, you know, you need help. And I've worked with this lady called Jackie Bateman, and I've worked with her for a long, long time. And she uh, is. She's wonderful for story as well because my mind can go off and spin a story on a sixpence really I've got one of those really strange brains that can do that and I often go down the wrong track and she'll go The mountain is up that way. (laughs) Could you get back on the path? Yes. Don't wonder. That's very helpful for me It's immensely helpful for me and also when the book is sort of getting near the end by which time it's quite big I don't know what I'd do without her because it's just like in my head, it's like, oh, how do you get all this to go together? And she's done that, so that's brilliant for yes. me. Yes,
0: but but you found in this time that, that you're able, I guess, because of less distractions, you're able to to maybe see your way up the mountain a little bit easier.
1: Oh, much easier. I mean, you know, it's always, yeah. you say that, but it's always hell. You always get to the days where you, yeah. feel you just like bash your head on a brick wall and just go, I can't do it. I can't do it. Yeah. But actually, you, you, it gave you longer to sort of really think about it and be more prepared to go on the walk. Because often you, I sit down to write and I'm really on a good streak and then I know I've got to catch a train. <laughs> and you're thinking... No, and you've lost it, maybe for a week. I didn't lose the threads for so long. How did your relationship with Jackie Bateman start? How did it come about? Well, it came about because I had a wonderful editor who I worked with a lot called Judith Elliott, who I really have to thank because I was an illustrator before I became a writer, and I have to thank her for believing I was a writer. I mean, she I wrote a book called The Strongest Girl in the World, and I, I had done that. Uh, it, it, I had to have someone to help me get it into english on that one (laughs) and she she said when she saw my writing for i coriander she said i knew you could write but i didn't know you could write which i always thought was an amazing (laughs) it it makes me you know choke me up even now yeah but after done the red necklace she said i can't cope with your manuscripts they are so bad that they are i you know i can't and she was a person who couldn't really read a sentence unless it was properly had proper grammar in it. Yes. It was really old school. Yeah. And I was very, I'm still great friends with a writer called Meg Rosoff. And uh, she said, Look, I know someone who did continuity in films. She is very good. Would you be interested in her looking at your manuscript? And Jackie is a woman who is very forthright, <laughs> has lots of opinions, hmm. and we found I really liked her abrasiveness. I I really liked that approach. We have our battles, we have our disagreements, but she is brilliant at saying, oh, so you want to say because 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 in you've done it in three places here and you are repeating this you know you're repeating that and you use that word from this character why is this character using this word suddenly when he's never had that kind of language it would really make me stop and think oh, oh okay and then we did this thing which she reads she reads my work back to me and that is phenomenally helpful because i think more writers regardless of dyslexia could benefit from this because when you read a character back you hear what you don't want to hear in a way yeah so you he wouldn't say that take it out so what would he say and then a lot of what we do is on the phone where she'll go go and read that bit and i she'll read it and i go well i would say this to you yeah so we'll put that in and that is such a, a life saver. I mean, whether you're dyslexic or not, more writers could really benefit from it. You know, hearing how many words are needed when maybe lots of them aren't. You, you take them out. Yeah. You take them out. But we've worked together now 13 years. Wow. We've sort of become slightly symbiotic. Yes. Symbiotic. Yeah. So she knows she can be thoroughly irritating. I can be thoroughly irritating, and. And we've had rows about words that you know really are sort of fisticuffs. (laughs) But I love all that. There's a passion in it that she's passionate about what I do, my work, and she's passionate about her input into my work, which you know makes it electric and makes. Also, recently I was thinking, you know, because I get very shy about sort of. Explaining what I do with her, I get always rather a bit shy, and you know, I've had people. I mean, mainly because of what happened before I wrote Maggot Moon, I had people saying to me, "I see, so you dictate your work?" No, I don't dictate my work. I see, so you have a ghost writer? No, I don't have a ghost writer. And it would go on in this incredibly negative language around how I wrote. And then I won the Carnegie, and everyone started saying, "Oh, she's a writer." Don't worry about it. But, I mean, it did take the Carnegie for that to stop. Yeah. In a way, it made me feel embarrassed to say what, how I did it, that I write it all out, I send it to her, she makes sure everything works, she reads it back to me. I then go, no, I don't, We'll take that out. Anyway, I wouldn't say that to you. But that character, no, take that out. So a lot of, a lot of the editing we do goes on the on phone. Yeah. On, on what we play around with, but again, when I think about it, hey, how many writers really do need to have that happening? Yeah. But I, I so it's it's a collaboration, but it's like theatre. Everything's, you know, has that collaborative element to it. He doesn't write my books; <laughs> they're my books.
0: I mean, I I should assume it's like you know, a musician and a producer. When a producer understands the artist, and you're collaborating. To come to to the sound which is always uniquely their own no one accuses the producer of being able to you know
1: that is the best way anyone has ever put it that is the bee's knees of ways thank you that is exactly what it is i was
0: scrambling around and i thought that must be it i mean no one says like the producer of the beatles made the produ- beatles sound it's, it's it's paul mccartney and john lennon and it's ringo and it's um george
1: you are absolutely right. I've, that is just—I've been scrabbling for years to think how to say it. And Jackie will always say, "Oh, don't tell anyone. Be quiet." You know. I think no, <laughs> no, no way of saying this. And then I've spoken to non-dyslexic writers who go quite jealous of that. But I do pay for it. I mean, you know, I—I I have to say that I—I I cho- I choose that. One of the things I what led me to this path is because I refuse to put in a bad manuscript and. Um, One of the analogies I use when I talk to children is swans and ducks. Like a duck looks like it's, you know, quacking all over the place. In fact, its legs move in a rather elegant manner as it goes underwater. And a swan looks very graceful. But my word is its legs going hammer and tong under the water to make it look graceful. Yes. And I'm more on the swan side. So I thought I'm not ever going to put in a manuscript that I am not really feel is absolutely shiny, clean and good. Yes. And so I am prepared to pay for it. Whereas people who can know they can spell and they're very good with the English language. um, Don't worry about it. Yeah, I just never have felt that. Yeah. So that's how I got to meet Jackie. Brilliant. My, um, my brother, he's, um,
0: he's a writer and playwright as well. And I've worked sometimes on his plays he's an actor as well and he, so we'll be working on his text and you know you can turn to him and say mate what did you what did you mean here he completely understands the need of the actor um to have it have it clear for them you know for it to be demystified in a practical way because because the actor has got to get up and perform it he's not precious about it but he also is, he's like leaning into it. he's like if, if i can use this actor to for me to become clearer then the whole piece will benefit as a result of it, and if I need to cut that bit, great. That's that's fine.
1: But I, I I've seen that happen a lot. I mean, I've worked with, fortunately, very luckily, with living playwrights, and when I was a designer, and you see that all the time. Actors say, "I'm sorry, I just not feel I can say that." Yeah. I mean, it sounds dark. I mean, I've just killed someone, and I'm saying something so soppy about a rabbit. I can't do that. Yeah. And you can go. The writer goes, oh yeah, damn! I didn't realise. Put the rabbit in there, and that isn't the right word. Oh, damn! And that is something that I really did get from my working in theatre and watching. You know that. And, and a writer, in a way, you're you're a sole performer. You're performing to yourself mainly most of the time. You've got no audience. Yeah. <laughs> you've got no way of knowing if you've just been rambling for hours. Most probably, yeah. I have. And then you just read it someone reads it back to you and you think oh man there's all these words what the hell was all take them out get them out when you don't see it when you're on the page
0: no I, I i write as well i mean i i um i'm more writing screenplays or or characters for stage and i find it's almost like a fermentation you know you you go through those stages you're building that iceberg as it were you know the the tip is what people see on stage and then you've got to build all this this depth underneath the surface and you've got a stew in it, um, and it's a lot of it is waiting. I find for, for myself that I'm 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 waiting for it to sort of reveal itself to me, and it does. It takes time, and if you're if you're constantly being distracted and you, and that is broken up, that 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 necessary period is 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 uh, is lost, or you have to put it off to another time.
1: Yeah, and also the words, you know, words. I I love words and you want to get not the language not complicated so people go oh i can't read this but you also want to make language dance yes you want to give it you know you want to give it a good voice yes not not contrived but a voice that is one you're really happy and keen to play with i've said it before but i have a real loathing of like yes the word used in literature like because nothing is like anything you are in it or you're not in it and i get despairing when i open a book and the first sentence has like in it i think oh my god i've got to go through 400 pages and i didn't like the first like how am i going to like all the other likes and i think as much as you can you know i'm sure if writing is visceral and you've got to be in it and you push it away with a like you sort of You say it's not me anymore. I don't know what the like means. I've never understood it. It's one of those things that sort of baffles me completely. It's a bit like, I've used it there, but it's when people don't say said, and they use a sort of description of how someone speaks, I find that very disturbing. You can only, it's gotta be said, asked or replied to give it real punch. Words should give it the punch. The said is just a piece of grammar, really, in a way. I'm sure you feel that when you're writing your plays. You know, the said is just there as a character. Uh, it's there.
0: Completely, completely. And I think what you do and what you've done in, in so I, I loved researching you and reading your books. I've read Maggot Moon and Tinder and I Coriander, and in each you have uh, character voices. They are they are absolutely uh, they're not uniform between the three books at all. They're they are unique characters, and you do get a sense of the performative um, necessity that that you had to use when you're writing them. And I, I did think because it completely made sense that you spent 15 years in the theatre. Do you think that informed your your process the way the way you write novels?
1: I think it was everything i i in fact someone the other day said what should where should my child go she wants to become a writer i said go into theater yeah you, you know there is nothing and you know it as well as i do but to see a play die is perhaps the best learning you can ever do for a start you can tell when an audience goes to sleep yes and you can't always bring out the gun. But you, you, in a way, in writing, you need to be aware of that. You, I think it's something people lose because they get so embroiled in the making of ink in medieval days that they forget that the audience, they've just lost their entire audience. Yeah. Who couldn't give a monkey's tooth about ink in the medieval days. Yeah. And I'm very aware of that, especially because... I coriander. I have to admit, had a lot of likes in it, by the way, because I hadn't dawned on me that one didn't need to do it. I think that learning that is the, the theatre was essential for me. It was essential. I remember working years ago at Newcastle Theatre with a director called Keith Hack, and we were doing Boltov Brecht, Good Woman of Sets One, and it was one lunchtime, and he said to me, "I don't like the way." He had translated this. It's totally illegal what we were up to, by the way. He said, I don't like what I've done with this, the way it said, well, how would you do it, Sal? And I said how I thought it should sound. He went, yeah, it's very good. Have you thought you might be a writer? And I remember thinking at the time, I can't spell. How can I be a writer? I can't can't spell. I was very convinced by um, Pooh, Winnie the Pooh's argument that you couldn't be a writer if you couldn't spell Tuesday. For me, it was Wednesday, but, you know, if you couldn't spell it, (laughs) then you couldn't be a writer.
0: Yeah.
1: I think Boltov Brecht had a great influence on me as well, because there was a man who used immensely simple language. It had nursery rhyme quality to it. It's sort of pat-a-cake, pat-a-cake. And yet, at the same time, with these simple words, the punch home was fantastic. Yes. It, you, you, you would see the audience thinking, oh, this doesn't affect me. This is, you know, this is nursery stuff. And actually by the end of it, you had them.
0: Yes, absolutely. And the, the effectiveness of simplicity. I mean, it's so difficult to achieve, but when you do, I mean, you can't argue with it. What we found, certainly what I've found talking to people on this pod is every single person, dyslexic person I've, I've spoken to has a relationship with perceived failure. Or what other people think to be failure or getting it wrong, but they make friends with it. They realise it's just a, a necessary step on, on the way to achieving something. And I feel like that's what you you were saying with with a with a play that fails. That from there you can see, oh, okay, well, that doesn't work. This might work. Was there
1: was there a particular failure for you? Well, I think failure is the best teacher you can ever have. I mean, I think it's one of the most underrated teachers. That we ever walk our lives with, every failure teaches us far more than any success teaches us. Success really teaches us very little. Yes. But failure teaches us everything we need to know. Yes. It gives us the hooks we need to do better with. Uh, Every time in my life, uh, and I at school, I failed in everything. So failure was, you know, (laughs) a good friend of mine. Every failure led me to think how I could untangle it. Every failure I would sit with and think, How do I, do I bother with it? Is it important? Because a lot of the things in education I decided weren't important. That it didn't matter. They were train tracks. They were simplified. They were silly. They weren't relevant. So I didn't count those really as failures for me school was a complete disaster it's an absolute write-off when i went to art school i i remember thinking about corks in bottles that pop up like champagne corks and i went from the absolute bottom like a rocket i went like a rocket to the top and i think it was all the failure beforehand that had sort of in a way given me a, a clue to how i could Do something different, and in art school, I got an opportunity to be me, and being me seemed to be a winning format.
0: I love that. I love that idea that that failure was sort of shaking the bottle up, and then when you found your passion, art, that meant that the cork just shot off the top of the champagne bottle. So, when was it you found art? No, this this is it. This is what I love.
1: Well, I'd always drawn because I couldn't make any head or tail when people were talking to me, unless I had my hands doing something, and I always I drew. I didn't know I was really any good at the thing, really. I loved it. I got a very low mark in my, whatever they were called then, I think O levels, I got a terribly low mark, which was more upsetting than nearly anything else. And I got into Hammersmith, I got into the Heatherly Wilson, which was a, a tiny little art school really for rather old ladies and men who wanted to do something in their environment. <laughs> but I, I was very young, and I, I, at school no one had ever taken me seriously. I was the clown, I was the bull, bullied one. And um, I remember we had a, a the teacher talking about Modigliani, mm. who I loved. I loved his work, I was fascinated by him. And I asked a question about Montiliani. And he said, That is a really good question. And I burst into tears. Do you know why I burst into tears? 16 effing years I had put my hand up. 16 effing years no one had said, Yes, Sally?
0: Oh, that's heartbreaking.
1: I waited 16 years to have my first question answered. And it's still going on today. It is still happening and it makes my blood boil
0: I feel like you have a love of history so history and and acting were the only two things I've ever I ever showed any level of attitude with at school I've said it before but I was incredibly blessed to have a a mum who was a dyslexic herself who was like yourself made to feel like she was stupid at school that she wasn't good at anything and and she was she was going to make sure that that would never be something that I was exposed to and I feel like you, you set two you set Tinder and I I Coriander in the mid 17th century. Did you love history at school or was that something that, that that came later?
1: I loved history. I loved all the naughty bits of history. Yes. I loved knowing that people threw shit out of their windows. I loved knowing all the silly little facts that teachers would go that isn't important i think oh yeah yeah you were lucky to have a dyslexic mum. yes you know i think all oh, my children are dyslexic it's inherited and here we are and it should never be seen as a problem but we do think differently and sort of logic logic history year by year i find as boring as anything And I'm, I'm not particularly interested in that i want to know how people lived i wanted to know you know how many black people were there in london what was london like all the things that aren't answered yeah they're not there that's what interested me
0: and how things haven't changed how, how some things something stayed the same
1: it's all in a way all things are the same you know we yes. we've only got better gadgets that's all we're just basically the same people we sort of need to eat poo and go to sleep you know we're basically the same but i also i always look for a turn in history something that interests me about history and um when i did tinder I wanted a war because I. the whole thing was it was based on a Hans Christian Andersen story yes. called The Tinder Box, which he wrote when he was 28. It's the most aggressively witty, I don't give a monkey's toot about anything kind of story. It's totally immoral. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. The main thing that interested me was the witch who asked the soldier, what did you get from war? And the soldier replies, nothing. I got nothing. And you ask, and I was very fortunate in meeting particularly one soldier who had come back from Iraq and had suffered post-traumatic stress in, in a most gross way. And what happened to him had been... I mean, he was never really going yeah. to be the same person again. And he took up flying uh, cheroot helicopters. He never wanted to hold a gun. He said he'd fly the helicopter, but he would never fire a gun again. And he told me some extraordinary stories about young men who were coming back to live in our society who were uh, in a very, very bad way. And I thought about this in where could I put this book? Where could I set it where it would really mean something? And I read about 30-year war, which I thought it, it was just horrendous. I mean, in Germany, you've got to understand in those days, there wasn't many people. But after 30 years, 3 million had died. Wow. Of you know, plague and war and famine. It, it was horrendous. It, it, it sent it back to the wilderness. There were bears and it became on, you know, like it was in very, very ancient days. And when um, Goebbels said to Churchill they surrendered, he said, I surrender because I don't want this to be like the 30-year war. Do you know what they had to do? They had to look it up in the Encyclopedia Britannica to see what the 30-year war was. Wow. And what really disturbs me about history is that if we don't teach European history, yes. we will never understand the First World War. Mm. So it goes like this there's the 30 year war, then there's Napoleon. Napoleon then really does more damage to Germany's borders. Then we have the First World War, then we have the Second World War. But in a way, we've had three world wars, European world wars, already with the 30 year war. And essence, we teach this in a more global sense. It's not surprising we're leaving Europe yeah. because we were only taught about the Second World War. Yeah. You know, for years, hundred, years and years, we've just taught nothing but the Second World War. Yeah. And personally, I think we need to teach much broader, much wider, and learn a little bit more about our neighbours. Well, abs- absolutely,
0: absolutely. I mean, I think in popular culture, Blackadder goes forth. There's just that one simple line. It's so beautifully succinct. Where he said, uh, "Blackadder says something like, we wanted to stop Germany having an empire,' which isn't what you're taught at school. You're not. You're not taught about colonialism. You're not. You're not taught this. They weren't this um, something like the Nazis, but like a Diet Coke version. They're only doing what France and and um, Holland and um, England Spain. were doing. Spain, exactly. They were trying to set up another colony." And um, France and England didn't didn't like that, but we're not taught that. We're not taught, you know, we're sort of taught that the Spanish, the Spanish, you know, the Spanish Armada—they were a bit naughty. They tried to come over and invade us one time, but you know, we, we gave them what for.
1: It, it's 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 a real problem. We're not taught about the Spanish Inquisition. Yes, I mean, I, I think heartbreaking what we are, what we leave out in our children's education, and also, by the way. The thing about Germany, I love Germany. I, I, I think it's an amazing country it is. And before the H- man, who absolutely screwed the whole thing up yeah. we, it gave us um, philosophers, it gave us music, it gave us literature. It was an um, amazing country. Mm. out of it came some of the greatest things we've ever had in Europe. and all we settle on is the H- man.: Yes, I'm mean,
0: part, part of our language. You know, uh, from Saxony, part of the English language is, is is Germanic. Yes, and you know we're not we're not taught about that in any way. We're not. There's not an honest conversation about how even the English language was formed from Greek and Latin and French, and which I find personally fascinating. That's what I found reading your books is this the level of of how visceral it is. But you're also trying to, as you say, get a sense of what it was like to live to live then in that time to experience it in Maggot Moon, you know, trying to give us an idea of what life would be like in a totalitarian Britain, say, if the Nazis had um, taken over.
1: I think also the thing is, if we we taught English, uh, I don't know how old you were when you learned to read, but I was about 14. But if we had taught in a way where we made language much more fun, saying, like, it, it, it's no phonics doesn't work for us because it's not a language of phonics i hate the phonic police this is a language of archaeology in a way we've got little p's and q's and s's and silent letters that don't mean a thing but they're there because they belong to the greek the germans the french yes and that's what makes English so elastic, gives it such elasticity and makes it so exciting. And When you hear hip hop and grime and you hear these words coming in and George the poet, I just think, wow, yes, 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 more, more, more. This is, and what is sad in a way for France is the French, unless you go under the street, I don't speak French, but the language has become so stilted. Yes. And this has not happened to English.
0: No, it shifts, it changes, it permeates into, into other things. And in grime and, and things like that, like uh, British hip hop, they've, they've also like recycled words like vexed, which has just, you know, been lost more or less from, you know, more middle class um, vernacular.
1: When I was writing Coriander, I said to my son, I read him a bit and I got vexed in it. Yes. And he went, oh, mum, you can't use that. I said, why not? He said, it's street mum. He <laughs> no, it's not. 15th century, it's beyond earlier than that. It's just so great. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, but that is really where, you know, in a way, that's what's so clever about George the poet and what he gets up to, is that he's milking Old English, in a way, to find his words. He's he's using them and putting them back in a way that makes them very relevant and street. Well, that's it. Shakespeare would have loved him.
0: That's something I really wanted to to ask you is, I feel like you're a storyteller and you have been in it all of your professional life in the theatre, costume, um, set dressing. So do you consider yourself a storyteller?
1: Yeah, I do. I would happily say I am a storyteller. I could tell you a story on you give me it, I'll do it. And I I think I discovered that I, I knew it, but I wouldn't own it <laughs> um, until I went to Edinburgh Book Festival one year and they, asked, they said, we're going to do this idea with three writers, one tells part of a story and another tells another and you've got, and the other two guys just got themselves into such a tangle. And every time it came to me, I had to unknot it to give it back to them, for them to tangle it up again, for me to unknot it. And I just thought, nothing fades me on the, their tangle. And I thought, oh, that is really interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I, think I, I think I would call myself a storyteller.
0: Yeah. That's you seeing the way up the mountain for other people. Yeah. You're an ambassador of of listening books. So I, my road to length to read was, was really long. I mean, my comprehension was more than my age. So before I could read, I would listen to an audio book every night before I went to sleep. So I, I was listening to like Christopher Lee had a series of, of the Gothic horror books, which... If you haven't heard them, are some of my favourite things ever committed to? No, yeah,
1: they're great. No, I have heard them. I
0: have heard them. They're great. And he, I mean, you know, he's obviously an astounding actor and can do the voices beautifully. But so Hunchback of Notre Dame, Dracula, Frankenstein. They, I mean, I, I cannot speak to how much they they started my love of stories. And I think was, I mean, there are many things that lead to you wanting to pursue a career as an actor. And, and certainly that was that was one of the. What is what's your relationship to audiobooks? because I mean to be an ambassador surely you must you must think they're incredible
1: oh I do I think you see I I grew up in a time where there wasn't audio and quite honestly i I, I was bereft I, I, of story I mean in the I in the end I made all my stories up but w- when I discovered the library for the blind because fortunately if you are dyslexic they recognize us as part of them which is wonderful wow and not enough people realize that i bless their cotton socks for it they recognize that dyslexia is a visual impairment with words maybe not that we're not blind but we can't get them out like well i don't know i don't know what normal is i personally don't think (laughs) there is such a thing no so I used to get. They had these wonderful clonking machines, and you got the machine, and then you got these huge tapes, and they would come, and they'd be read by sort of just ordinary Mister Jones. And I remember um, reading Madame Bovary, and it and it had gone like this, just to give you the tone of it. Madame Bovary, <laughs> chapter one, <laughs> and I ended up never hearing that. Yeah. I it was like reading. And so for me, I love straight reading. And it's something I'm really worried about that is going. Lots of people act now. Oh my word, Mr. Bennett, and that's great. Yeah. But actually, a child needs to have a time to read a book and to be able to go. Well, what did you think of it? Yeah. And actually, they have no voice. They've just had. Once upon a time, there was a da 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 dum da, da, da dee, and they just read it with the full stops and the no. So then all it becomes is like a text line that you interpret in your ear yeah and you then hear the book for what as you would see it no one has the same mr darcy yes and i feel very strongly that we are depriving our children of that possibility you know of of their own harry potter not stephen fry's harry potter and so in a way my passion is for audio but Also, you're always up against this, always with it, with teachers and people who will say, but they haven't read the book. Now, I'm sorry, if you've listened to an unabridged from beginning to end, you have read the book. Yes. You know, to put us into second class or third class citizens because we do it through our ear is wrong. Completely.
0: Because, I mean, you can't fail but be expanded by... Victor Hugo's words, you know, it's obviously translated, but the, the end of The Hunchback of Notre Dame where, spoiler alert, um, (laughs) uh, Quasimodo has broken into um, Esmeralda's tomb when she was hung and his, his skeleton crumbles into dust. I know. That, I'm sorry, is one of the great, I mean, I'm almost crying just thinking, I'm sorry. Uh, I know. It is one of the most tragically romantic things ever committed to print. And the idea that anyone would argue, having been exposed to that, I mean, you know, yes, Christopher Lee's delivery of it, when I listen to it, is very Christopher Lee. You know, (laughs) you're getting all the resonance, you're getting all of the, almost all of the fruitiness, but oh my God, it's heartbreaking. And to be told that you didn't experience that, or that it's any less of an experience to somebody who actually sat down and read it. Yeah, that makes me, makes me
1: angry. It's all wrong, and also Dickens. You know, I I think it's very hard to read Dickens today, but to listen to Dickens. Yes, I mean it was meant to be listened to. To listen to him is such luscious wonderfulness of language and character, and the wit of his words. And this this lockdown, I've been listening a lot to P G. Woodhouse, <laughs> right. which I've truly loved. In you know, because. When I'm writing, it's very hard to take on very serious books, but I have loved those. Tinkety Tonk, just wonderful. Yes. Yeah, language is such delicious. It's like a bowl of sweets to eat every day. It's just gorgeous. Absolutely.
0: What's that? In, um, Frank McCourt says it in Angela's Ashes. Shakespeare is like diamonds in your mouth. Oh, it's wonderful.
1: I think I, I think I said it in, in *Maggot Moon*. I think I used it as "sweets in the mouth of sound."
0: Yes, you did. Yeah, "sweets in the mouth of sound." Yeah, one of my favourite audiobooks that we would I'd listen to continually was Tom Baker reading *The Great Expectations*.
1: And one, oh, I've got to give you another one, and that is Ian Holm. Yes, reading *Woman in White*. Oh brilliantly read brilliantly read and i've been so lucky i've had simon russell beale really read all my little children's books
0: yeah i was going to say you said one of your biggest fantasies was to have an actor in in the cupboard yeah. that you bring out to read to you and you've i mean you've had Juliet stevenson emilia fox tom hiddleston simon russell beale all read your audio books i mean
1: wow i know i've been so lucky i've been so lucky it is quite funny i mean when tom hiddleston turned up no one knew him and then of course he became big yes and then <laughs> anyway but simon i mean i've loved simon i mean i've just loved yeah. that boy i've loved him so much since it saw him as a young actor and to have him there reading your work it, i mean honestly it it was like i've just died and gone to heaven but you know it it is unbelievable it was unbelievably magical and he does it so well. And I, I went and saw him play Lear, and he was reading one of my books, Operation Bunny, <laughs> which has a character in it called Fidget, and Fidget speaks very low. And uh, I went to have a drink with him afterwards, and he said, oh, "Sally, I'm so sorry. I've had to cancel the recording for tomorrow because Fidget's voice does a uh, Fidget and Lear just." Don't <laughs> go
0: no, I mean, I, I saw that. Was that the, the Sam Mendes at the National?
1: Yes, that was.
0: Yes. Wow, he would have been exhausted doing that.
1: He would have been exhausted, but he, he was just, you know. And then we went and saw him um, do the. What was he reading for me? He was reading another one of them, I think. He must have been. And we went and saw him at. Uh, at um, Stratford on Avon, doing the Tempest, oh, that was amazing. One of my favourite plays, that the Tempest. I adore that yeah. play. Was that is that his last? It was his last play, wasn't it? The one he's done at the moment, I haven't seen, but yeah, the last Shakespeare I think he did was the Tempest. Oh, uh, that bit when Prospero puts down his pen—it really does sort of break your heart.
0: That bit. So what? What I'd love to ask you is how how your dyslexia manifests itself.
1: You know, what what form does it take? It's a very good question, gosh. Um, (laughs) I get my words twisted sometimes, but today I seem to be doing better than (laughs) I do some occasionally, where I really managed to go, tongue tie myself up into a little parcel of knots. um, And I leave out the little words. I think the little words are what cause me a mitigated hell. I just somehow don't see them. I mean, I know, I read a sentence, you know when I'm clear headed, I think, well, where did I put the two? Where was the was? Absolutely, what happened to the odds? Oh?
0: Yes, that's me, that's um, me. I miss out my ands, my twos, my buts, things like that.
1: And you just think, these it's not the big words that get me as well, they do get me, but yeah, the little words that I just always mess with my me brain. I just leave them out, man. I don't know why I leave them out, but there they go. Um, i can twist words round i can visually twist a whole thing round backwards and it, if i get very freaked out i get unbelievably knotted i you know i'm i mean i can't really see straight from the knots that i've got myself into so i think that's how how does yours manifest itself
0: yeah so it is i miss out the connectives um the twos the buts the ands and then you know we'll make a mess of the bigger words i'll have a go but you know if i try and do all my writing on, uh, on the computer. So hope I hope, but sometimes they get mangled so much. They have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> and then maths. Do you have an iPhone? I have an iPhone. So when I, when I do a stage character, I improvise and turn on the mic. Yeah. So I'll turn on the mic and I'll improvise a few sentences or what have you. And then I'll commit that to writing it into word so that I can then, if I need to perform it, go back and and learn the, the lines so that I have the, the score, the musical score, as it were.
1: So I found a really good trick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my really good trick is notes. Yeah. You go to notes on your iPad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you can just um, then dictate, and it'll do all the really tricky words for you. So I have it by my desk. And so when I've come a word like, absolute or absolutely which i'd get muddled up with i just put it in i just dictate it and there it is and i can put it in it's such a good way of doing it
0: oh wow i've only just seen that now (laughs) i'm looking at notes now i'm going how have i not seen that the little audio sign at the bottom
1: right that's right and the other really best trick and my son told me this all my children are dyslexic by the way but my son told me this one which i did like he said, why are you trying that? I was trying to look up a word and I was, I was having absolutely no joy. He said, mum, the best thing for spelling is Google. Yeah. Just put anything in. One way or other, you'll get to the word. Yeah. And, and that's that was a really good trick for working out how to, you know, if you're really stuck. Because sometimes if it's got a silent P in front of it, I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, phenomenal. Yes. I, mean, I would say that because of an F. Yes. So I'm really lost i'm never going to find that word but you put it into google with an f and it'll come up with uh, the right word
0: yeah god bless the internet it's good for some things isn't
1: it i tell you something i wouldn't be a writer today without mr jobs so there we go he gave me a clean screen he gave me an ability to work my ideas out in different colors to have a think and sort of stitch them together at the end of the day and i don't know how i'd have done that being as dyslexic as i am with a Piece of paper and a pencil.
0: Yeah,
1: were your were your parents dyslexic? Do you think? That's a very good question <laughs> you're asking. Mm-hmm. You, you're very good at this. The, my my parents were all self-made. My father came from Preston, yeah, in Lancashire, where he r- really they were, were pretty broke, pretty poor, and he pulled himself up by his bootlaces. But he was darn clever because he went in and the war. He went in as an ordinary seaman and he came out as a commander. Wow because he got sunk so many times that they kept going, pushed up the ladder. Yeah, And then when he came out, he was getting a suit, and they said to him, well, you can go and be anything you want to be. So he, wanted to, he thought he'd be a lawyer. He did very, very well for himself. But he did this thing. He wrote in longhand, and he did also shorthand, because he did reporting. Yeah. But his words were absolutely unreadable. But in those days they were readable because do you remember that writing that just looks like you're doing U U U Yeah and with a dot in there? Yeah. It, it's all joined up. Yes. And so whether it was dyslexic or not, we'd never know because <laughs> nobody could tell. Like why don't you just join up and put a dot in the middle? Yeah. And I realised then that that's what he was doing. So that's quite interesting. I don't know. I mean, I don't know about, my, you know, my mother, again, came from not, you know, they, they, were, they were not wealthy. They didn't, girls didn't get much education, no. you know, wouldn't have known much.
0: But that's, I mean, talk about an extraordinary time in history. To come from the Second World War, to then be told as a, as a working-class boy, you can be wh- whatever you want. I mean, that's, you know, that flies in the face of however many years of, of history, British history, English history, certainly, where, you know, the class structure was so ingrained and then to, you know, obviously from there's the, the um, NHS was formed and there was, you know, free milk and free dentistry. I mean, that's such an incredible time in, in, in British history.
1: It was. And then it, it all went back again, because I remember my father, he, he went into Houses of Parliament um, and he, I'm afraid to say, he, I always thought, went to the wrong side. He went to the Conservatives from the Liberals. Yeah. And he was always told, you know, your shoes may come from knobs, your suits from Savile Row, but we can tell what your education is. Right. You're not one of us. Right. And that, I'm afraid, I still think is there. Yes, no, I agree. I still think it is there in that party. If you look at all the utonians all the sort of club good handshakes, Garrett Club, all those things, you look at that and you think, come on, you know, if we're really going to get equality for women and for minority groups, we need to stop this. Yes. We need this needs to go. And I do really think in this day and age, we you know, the underlying problems that we are having at the moment within our society, Black Matters, Me Too issues, all these, the underlying thing is the children. And one of the things that I feel passionate about is it is not being diagnosed. Yes. And I don't know if you know this, but maybe you do. You know there are parts of in the world where dyslexia isn't even recognised. Russia, India, France has problems with it, Italy. You go on. You could do a map of the world where hundreds, thousands, millions of children are just being left with all that potential. It's heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, it is. It's absolutely devastating. When I realised at school, the amount of children who were not as... who didn't have a lion for a mum like mine, who were going to fight for them... Because, you know, they were potentially mixed heritage um, and their parents didn't have the money or, you know, they they thought, well, you know, I have it as well. And you just sort of get on with it um, and you just think, well, that's, that is a waste. If we're not making use of everyone's talent and ability in society, then, then there are thousands of people that are being wasted. And, and we all suffer as a result of it. We do. All as a society suffer if everyone's not at their best.
1: And the... When I was small, just to say, if I'd been born 10 years before that, I'd ended up in a mental institute because of my dyslexia. And that was happening to people. We haven't got much better. We're still excluding.
0: Completely. Completely. Well, whenever people hear this, today is a day when um, the government has lowered the the COVID threat and um, very uh, surreptitiously they've um, stopped funding student nurses, just very quietly which I think gives you a
1: sense. They're such a sneaky, creepy little bunch. I'm going to say this, it's really putting my head on there, but I feel so angry with Corbyn because he really blew a chance we had to stop all this. That was unforgivable. I went to New Zealand and I went to listen to... Jacinta. Thank you, Arden. And I went to listen to her talk yes she amazing woman and she you you know how she got power this extraordinary story she was you know the, the election was happening it was three weeks before they actually had to vote and the uh other chap who was the leader of the labor party said i'm not fit for this i'm not going to win it so i would like you to do it wow and she gets off a plane and she takes the banner and she goes with it and she wins but what she said, the unsung hero of this was the man who had the balls to stand down and say, I'm not up for it. Yeah. You know, we're not going to win. Yeah. You know, for many, many reasons, it's a shame and a shambles. And all those young students who came out, all queuing and queuing to vote. And you just think, oh, man, heartbreaking. Really. I,
0: don't know, I don't know if you've seen it, but she released either today or yesterday, she released a two-minute video where she breaks down everything she has done. Since coming into office, and it's extraordinary. She exudes that charisma and that leadership that that you, that you really want.
1: And one person asked her a question like, "What will you do if you don't win the next election?" And she went, "I've got a life. Oh, there's So much I want to do. I'm young. You know, yeah. I don't. I don't want to do this forever. And it just, she's human. You know, she's a real human being." Which I afraid I don't think we have at the moment. Well, that's it. I mean, I, I
0: do. I do think that part of it is career politicians. You know, back in the day, you know, people were GPs or they were they had other things that they were going to go back to, and they they did their duty, their civil duty, and then they and they went off and did it. It's, that, that's what I get a sense from her is that she is a she's a person. She's got other things, and this, this is just what she's doing at this present time, and she's she's doing a a bloody good job. If I, if I can wrestle this back to, um, <laughs> to, to the reason you're, you're here, I would love to hear your advice to young people who've been diagnosed or people who are, who've come to their diagnosis later on in life, but they probably uh, suspected that they, they were dyslexic. What advice you would give them, um, given your relationship to dyslexia?
1: Well, I'm in a very privileged position because I th- see my dyslexia now as a gift. And uh, when I was young, I would have just told anyone, that was about the most stupidest thing I would ever, ever say, that it had caused me so much hiccups and so many problems. So what I think about dyslexia is that it's like a a present. You're given this present, but it's wrapped up in so much sellotape. (laughs) And some crazy old box then decided to put another load of paper on it, forgetting she'd wrapped it up once and then wrapped it up again and you're really lucky if you're as dyslexic as I am to even have got the first blooming layer of paper off it before you leave school so really it wasn't till I was in my 40s that I finally managed to get the final (laughs) roll of the paper off that present and saw what it truly was and I think the thing that I would say the most is do not give up don't throw it away don't just dismiss it and think, oh, it's not worth it. I'm going to be nothing. Cling on to it. And I think in lots of ways with dyslexia, it's you've got to have a dream. You've got to believe in something better. And you will get there. It just takes longer than anyone else. But you will do it. I mean, I, gave a, uh, I was asked to a school um, to give a, a, a lecture, uh, to give a prizes away on a speech day. And they told me they had all these, you know, pop stars had been in and everything. I thought, oh, don't want me then. I, I don't think i be doing good. And I said, I'm going to do a speech for losers. <laughs> and they went, sorry. I said, um, well, I'm, you know, everyone's won. But I always sat in those prize giving things. I don't know about you, but I never won a thing. And you could see, you know, parents getting stiffer and stiffer as the years go on and you still haven't won anything. Yeah. So um, I gave a speech for losers and I got a standard ovation. <laughs> yes too many losers you know too many people scarred yeah. by this perception of loss and losing it's it's ridiculous
0: and how do you feel there's been debate you know quite recently in terms of schooling and in terms of um you know this this idea of participation over uh, that d- just participating is 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 enough and this you know this this sort of desire not to label people winners or losers and i and i completely understand uh, given you know my own struggles Feeling, feeling worthless, and feeling like you are not good enough. But we have talked in this conversation about how useful it, it can be to to look at a perceived failure uh, and and see what is wrong and try and address it, trying to try and do better next time.
1: What are you, what are your feelings about that? I think failures are a very important factor. Yes, I think it's the way it's looked at and how it can be helped. If it was more embraced as a positive. At the moment, it's completely as a negative. There's no reason for failure, no reason for success to be a positive either. We yeah. could do it the other way around. Yeah. You know, oh, dear, well, that was a bit of success. That's not going to teach you much. You know, but we don't. And we don't even acknowledge failure as being one of the greatest teachers in our schools. We don't acknowledge it. We just go, oh, you failed. And that instead of, so if it's done in, you know, the word mindfulness comes to mind and kindness comes to mind. But yes, we are all different. And some people will be supersonically brilliant in certain parts and other people won't. Yeah. And some people will be overtaken later who were supersonically brilliant. And that's what school is about. And to sort of say participation only matters is ridiculous. That is, that doesn't work. But there's got to be more mindfulness to how failure, the teacher, is brought into the school yeah. and more care about how you say, well, this isn't the end. You learnt a lot by failing. You learnt a great deal. And that is more important than succeeding in a way. Because what does success teach you? It teaches you as i said before unbelievably little you're very you know you win the carnegie it's an amazing moment you're sort of high on a kite and everyone waiting for the next book and you're thinking oh gosh (laughs) oh whoops you know whereas i you know i wrote a book a grown-up book and it didn't i don't think it's done very well people had lots of people not like it that taught me a great deal You know, that, that was the sort of like, oh, whoops, that really teaches you something. I think you've got to be brave about, you know, life just isn't a, isn't an arrow going one way or an arrow going the other way. It really is a very zigzag journey. And one has to be philosophical about how zigzaggy it is.
0: Well, Sally, that feels like the perfect note on which to finish. So thank you. Thank you so much for the time uh, you've spent with us. Oh,
1: thank you. It's been so lovely talking to you.
0: It's been gorgeous. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, with me, Jude Monk McGowan. My guest today was the author and animator Sally Gardner. There are more conversations in this series. Just search Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, and subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to support the charity or access its many services, go to dyslexia-help.org. So myself and Sally, we continued talking after the pod because we were just locked in a, in a really interesting uh, set of conversations that was going everywhere, you know, tangentially. And I, I shared a poem with her and she then found a poem that she'd written called The Box, which beautifully communicates her experience of her dyslexia. And, and she was good enough to read it for us. So, so here it is as a special treat, Sally Gardner's poem, The Box.
1: Dyslexia is a word that means frustration, quite unspellable, a poor explanation as to all the problems we have in education. As far as I'm concerned, it's a misinterpretation of a gift of a great imagination, and we need freedom from that discrimination but I want to ask the question. If imagination is the fuel of the nation, then why are we judged by such limitations, not allowed to do oral examinations? This is a tick box nation, five seconds of your concentration. No politician wants to think about school reorganization because no politician has the ideas for that kind of conversation. So what are the implications in this age of electronic communications when we still judge our children out-of-date examinations. Perhaps with a little bit of imagination we could change the situation for a whole generation that feel they have no meaningful representation. The time has come to think outside the box.